when I left for college, I already felt called to ministry. I felt called when I was about 16 years old, and so when I left for school, I, I declared myself a philosophy and religious studies major because I knew that I wanted to go to undergrad, that I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to become a pastor in the United Methodist Church because that's what I felt God was calling me to do. And so when I got to school, I knew that I was already going to be worshiping in a United Methodist Church on Sunday mornings, but I got all these flyers as I was walking around my first week of school for all these other campus ministries. And I thought, well, I, I like the United Methodist Church, but it can't hurt to try out some others to see what other kind of flavors of Christianity there are out there. And I remember the first Wednesday night that I was in school, I was invited to a gymnasium that was on campus for a worship service. And so I went, and it was this remarkable thing, because there were about 220-somethings there in the room, and there was this incredible band, not unlike ours, with a, a great projector and, and a light show. They even had a fog machine. Let me tell you, you want to make hearts and minds for Christ? Use a fog machine. And I, I was standing there, and I knew all the songs, because they were the same songs that I had played the drums for back at my home church. And so I was singing along, and, and I had my hands raised up as we were worshiping together, and then the sermon was okay. It wasn't the best I ever heard, but it was pretty good. And, and I thought, this is really profound. I, I, could really, I could really be on board with this. I could see myself coming here every week while I'm in school. And so at the tail end of that service, when the benediction had been offered and it was time for me to walk back to my dorm room, a very, very beautiful co-ed walked up to me. And I thought, wow, things are really working out for Taylor today. And she walked up to me and she said, oh, I don't think I've ever seen you here before. What's your name? And I said, I'm Taylor. And she said, oh, that's great. Um, did, did you feel the, the power of the Holy Spirit in worship tonight? I said, you know what? I really did. This is pretty remarkable. She said, well, I, I have a favorite ask. Do you think you could help me with something? I said, you want my help with something? Of course. What is it you'd like me to do for you? And she said, I'd like you to take this stack of papers. I said, oh, yeah, sure. What do you need me to do with them? She said, you see that dorm over there? I'd like you to go knock on every door, and I want you to give one of these pieces of paper to every single student who's in that dorm, and I want you to tell them that unless they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that they're going to burn forever in hell. Do you think you can do that for me? I said, I'd be delighted. I would be plumb pleased to do that for you. And so I took her stack of papers, I walked over to the dorm, and I threw them all away. Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? John Wesley said that preachers exist for one thing and one thing only, to save souls. Is that what we're here to do? Our scripture lesson comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verses 1 through 2 and 19 through 29. Hear now God's word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. We beseech you, O God. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every pastor has a favorite Palm Sunday story. Like the year that the palm branches were delivered far too early and they were so dried out that on Palm Sunday when the gathered congregation lifted them up above their their heads and waved them around, palm branch particles went flying in every direction and the whole congregation began to cough and sneeze in unison. Or the year that the pastor thought it would be a great idea to dress up like a donkey and to preach the sermon on Palm Sunday from the perspective of the animal that carried Jesus into Jerusalem, to which the pastor received perhaps the greatest Sunday morning comment of all time, you know, you're not the first donkey we've had up in that pulpit. Only they didn't use the word donkey when they said it. Or the time when the children of the church were waving their palm branches and lifting up their hosannas, marching up and down the center aisle, when all of a sudden they started to smack each other in the face with their palm branches, and a nearby parent had to jump in and break up the melee and said a little too loudly, Lord, deliver me from these children. I think the reason preachers like me enjoy telling a cute or a funny story on Palm Sunday is because the actual story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is rather confounding and weird. Put another way, Palm Sunday is perhaps the strangest Sunday in the year. It begins in celebration and it ends in catastrophe. It starts with Hosanna, it finishes with crucify. It begins with life and it ends with death. As they are approaching Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of his disciples to procure a colt for his entry into the holy city. He rides in a rather cartoonish way. It's like his feet are dragging on the ground on either side of the foal. People of Jerusalem are coming out in droves to see this Messiah. They are overcome with reverence, so much so that they begin to take their own clothing off of their shoulders. They lay it on the road only to be trampled on by the donkey. They make a royal carpet to worship the king. They even take leafy branches from the side of the road. They wave them to and fro and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna. I've always loved that word. It's such a churchy word. Where else do you hear that word? Nowhere but the church. Every time I hear Hosanna, it makes me think of my own childhood, parading around the sanctuary, waving a palm branch above my head. It makes me think of the musical masterpiece, Jesus Christ Superstar. Forgive me. Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. I'm going to keep going. Hey, JC, JC, you're all right by me. Hosanna, Hosanna, Superstar. You won't have to hear that for one more year. <laughs> Hosanna, it's such a good word. 
And every year we, we reach into the vault of churchy words, we dust off this old familiar declaration, and we proudly put it on display for an hour. We sing it in our songs, we put the lips, we put the word on the lips of our children, we hear it read in the scriptures, and then at the conclusion of Palm Sunday, we take Hosanna and we wrap it up like nice china with some newspaper, and we put it back into the vault only to bring it out one year from today. We're familiar with the word. It conjures memories and songs. Churches all across the world will join us in raising up their hosannas today. But do we know what it means? Do we know what the word means? It means save us. And it's not just a, a common sentence. It's a declaration. It's an emphatic demand. It's save us right now with an exclamation point saved. That's a word you don't hear in churches like ours very much. We're Methodists. We sing, and then we eat, and then we sing some more. We try to love each other. Really, we try, but saved? Now, love and grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness, those are Methodist words. Saved? How many got saved on Sunday? We don't say that in the Methodist church. In fact, we make fun of the other churches that talk that way. I remember someone asking me once if I was saved, and I said something like, I suppose so, and he told me he'd been saved no less than nine times. <laughs> Finally took on the ninth try. Hosanna, save us. Really, Lord? Maybe we should look in our Bibles for this word. If we don't say it in church on Sundays, what does the strange new world of the Bible tell us about this word? Where else does it appear besides the, the crowd shouting it as Jesus enters into the city that will kill him? There's a woman. She's been suffering from a hemorrhage for seven years. She's among the crowd one day, and she says to herself, If I but touch the hem of his garment, I will be saved. Except that's not what it says in our Bible. It says, If I but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. It's the same word. Saved. I will be saved. It's the same word that the crowds shout out on Palm Sunday. And she suffers more from, than just her bleeding. She's isolated. She's outcast. She's thrown away by the likes of her family, her friends. She's a nobody, and she's got no hope in the world until one day the hope of the world just passes by, and she reaches out. She's got nothing until she gets saved. Jesus saves there's a blind beggar. He's sitting by the roadside like the woman. He is unseen by all because of his inability to see. He's forgotten. He's abandoned. And when the Lord walks by, he shouts out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples are quick to shut him up. There are enough blind beggars in the world. The Lord's got more important things than to waste his time on you. But then Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. He has nothing to show for anything. He is a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. He is desperate, and in a moment's notice, he is jumping up. He is now in the parade of faith. He is dancing and shouting for joy. Jesus saves. There's a well-to-do man, rather rich, Mr. Z, to those who know him. While his fellows get poor and poor, he gets wealthier and wealthier. He's a tax collector. He skims from the top for himself. One day he hears that the Lord is coming to town, so he climbs up to the top of the tree, and the Lord says, Hey, get down. You got any plans for lunch? 
They go to Mr. Z's house, the wee little man, and the crowds are incensed. How dare the Lord go and eat with that sinner? What do they talk about over lunch? We don't know. We only know that when he leaves from that meal, the tax collector is changed. He says, I will give everything back that I have taken with interest. Jesus says, salvation has come to your house today. Jesus saves. It's no wonder to me that the crowds grew and grew and grew. It's no wonder that the strange new world of the Bible talks about people leaving plows in their field, leaving bread in the oven when the Messiah shows up because the Messiah is the one who saves. And there's no such thing as being a little bit saved or only partially saved. If you're saved, you're saved. And so when the crowds wave their palm branches, when they place their cloaks on the road, they scream for salvation from the only one who can give it. Hosanna, save us, Jesus. But save us from what? Jerusalem is occupied. The Roman garrison has entered the holy city from the other side. Pontius Pilate arrives with his army, with his troops. He is on the back of a war horse. At the same time, Jesus enters the other side of the city on the back of a donkey. The people of God, those living in Jerusalem, they are strangers in a strange land, the very land that God had promised. Their way of life is fracturing. Their faith is under scrutiny. They have no bright hope for tomorrow. And here comes the Messiah, the one who's going to make everything right. He saved others. Now he's going to save us. He's going to give us our city back. He's going to bring us our way of life back. He's the king. And so the crowds... They grow and they grow. The shouts of Hosanna, they ring through the streets until they see the cross. It is strange and not so strange that the same people who shouted Hosanna at the beginning of the week are the same people who shout crucify at the end. You see, it's all too easy for us to to cast Jesus into the roles of our own choosing. It's all too easy for us to put words, our words, into Jesus' mouth. We would still like to see him parade around into the madness of our circumstances to champion my hopes and dreams, to disrupt and frustrate the plans of my enemies. But Jesus doesn't come to bring us more of the same. Jesus comes to save us. He doesn't enter the holy city to establish yet another political machine that results in one group being in charge of everybody else. He doesn't pass out swords and shields to storm the temple walls. He doesn't even offer programs of personal morality that will make the world a better place. So when you read the Bible, you notice something very strange about the Palm Sunday story. The strange thing about this story is that Jesus doesn't say a word. Jesus doesn't say one word when he enters the city. He merely rides into Jerusalem, the city that will kill him. But it's Palm Sunday. We don't want to have to think about Friday yet. We like the images and sounds of the band playing and waving our palm branches in the air. But there is no jumping from today to Easter Sunday. Put another way, we must never forget that there is no resurrection without crucifixion. I mean, it's, it's in our songs, in our creeds, in our prayers, but we try to stay away from the crucifixion as much as possible. It's why there are far more people in church on Easter Sunday than on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. 
It's for good reason. The cross is a sign of death. It is the sign of our total and utmost depravity. But it is also the heart of God. God, the creator of the cosmos, lays aside almightiness to come and dwell among us in the muck and the mire of life. God comes to be one of us. God becomes vulnerable for us. And how do we return the favor? Crucify. Crucify. Why? Because we want salvation on our own terms. We want to take matters into our own hands. When push comes to shove, we don't want anybody to save us. We want to save ourselves. We don't want to be saved in our sins. We want to know that we're better than other people. The only problem with that is the Bible reminds us again and again that none of us is righteous. No, not one. You see, we crucified Jesus not because he was God, but because he was God and he did what we didn't want him to do. It's not that we weren't looking for the Messiah, it's just that he was not the one we were looking for. We're fine with being saved only so long as it fits neatly into our expectations of what it means to be saved. The crowds wave their palm branches. They shout their hosannas high into the sky. Save us, Jesus, save us. And you know what? By the end of the week, oddly enough, that's exactly what he does. Whether we deserve it or not, whether we like it or not, Jesus saves Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Even on the cross, Jesus saves. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.